one of the things about entrepreneurship, there is no reward without the risk. Every great entrepreneur had help. And where is that help going to come from? It's going to come from that social network. You don't have to be smarter than everybody else to make money doing asset allocation and save. I think there's a danger when you're in business to find arrogance, and especially if you're doing really well. At the end of the day, I ain't nothing special. I'm just a guy. What has value? Well, what has value is whatever people say has value. I'm going to get better and better and better at what I do as I get older. So the best me is going to be the me right before I die. Hey, family, welcome back to the Marketplace Podcast. I'm your host, Priest Willis, and today on episode number 129, I'm joined with Alfred Edmund Jr., who is the Senior Vice President and Executive Editor-at-Large at Black Enterprise Magazine and online content, and he's responsible for providing brand, marketing, and content leadership as a mentor of BE Senior Management Team. Alfred is also widely recognized expert on personal finance, entrepreneurship, mentorship, leadership development, and practical application of faith and daily living. He's also known for grown man knows content on the values and behaviors of responsible life affirming manhood, which has garnered enthusiastic appreciation. I'm so honored to have Alfred on today, the magazine that he's worked for which has spanned over three decades, has been an inspiration to me as I've grown in my business. And you'll hear a little bit more about that in the interview. And Alfred is just a good conversationalist. He's just somebody that is full of wisdom and willing to pour it out with me and share it with you all. So I hope you get something out of today's episode. Without further ado, here's my man, Alfred Edmund. Hey, Alfred, welcome to the program, man. Hey, it's good to be here, Priest. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited having you on. I mean, there there is so much rich information about your history, about what Black Enterprise has done for me, like many entrepreneurs, um, African-American entrepreneurs, and beyond that even, that I want to tap into you as an individual. Of course, I want to talk about the publication, but I, I would be remiss without taking a step back and kind of getting to know a little bit more about you and kind of your journey and bring us to a point of where you're at today and then kind of looking ahead. So one thing that I know noticed was that you went to Rutgers and you did not go for journalism, or at least that's that's what it appears to be in LinkedIn. So it's interesting that you've had this long career, your senior vice president, editor at large at Black Enterprise. Talk, tell me about that journey, man. What what kind of made the shift? Where was the pivot at for you into journalism? Well, you know, my life is a, is a perfect example of how things don't always go according to your plan. They actually go better than your plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a person of faith who really believes that, that you may have a great plan, but God's plan for you is even better. Yes, I agree. Because I was, I was born and recognized from preschool as a gifted artist and a gifted writer. I always had a thing for words, and I, w- I could draw and read as a preschooler. It was, so the writing thing from a gifted, talented ability um, standpoint was not new. That was apparent from practically from birth. But um, I grew up in a 
disadvantaged household, economically disadvantaged, not family disadvantaged. My mother, you know, had a great environment as she raised me and my um, younger siblings. And I'm the oldest of four. It's technically the oldest of five because one of one of my um, siblings um, died as an infant. But mm. you know, so when I was growing up in in Long Branch, New Jersey, my hometown, Long Branch for life, <laughs> I didn't know anybody who wrote for a living. It wasn't that wasn't the kind of I grew up in a working class community in a lower income household, and you know the people I saw making a living were construction workers or you know um, nurses and daycare center teachers and. We had a, mm-hmm. a cop that lived down the street and things like that. So, so even though I really I, I had the ability, I did not grow up thinking, "Oh, yeah, that's the way to make a living." And I didn't grow up in the kind of family that thought of that as a as a way to make a living. So, mm-hmm. fast forward um, when I graduated from high school, I did I did work on my high school paper, but as an illustrator, um, I was an illustrator for our, my high school's um, annual magazine called the Log, as well as the newspaper. I but it was as an illustrator, not as a writer. And I graduated from my high school as, as the outstanding artist and writer of my class. But I didn't, you know, again, I didn't think of it as anything more than it was just something I liked to do. And I was good at it, but it wasn't a vocation necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I went off to Rutgers, declared art is my major. And my original minor was psychology, but I switched that to economics because my guidance counselor in college was like, if you graduate during a recession, um, and I would have graduated in 1982, uh, and my mom, I had art as a major and psychology as a minor. And if I wasn't planning to go to grad school, I was going to have a hard time finding a job. So mm. get to Rutgers, art major, ultimately economics minor, and got involved in the black student movement at Rutgers. That's what it boils down to. So um, without giving you know every gory detail, I somehow ended up on the staff of a, paper, a newspaper called the Black Voice Cartagena at the time. It was the Black and Latino student newspaper and the major voice of, of um, the issues and concerns of Black and Latino students on campus. And I became a campus editor, but I thought that would be a one-shot deal and I would go back to my life as an art major. And apparently I did too good a job as a campus editor because my editor recruited me to take her place when she graduated. Mm. And again, in, in the whole your, God's plan is better than your plan, my answer to her was, hell no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, I, I survived this one year as a campus editor. I don't know how I got into that. And my attitude was I'd done my time and I was going back to, you know, my life um, as an art major and, and writing when I felt like it and not putting out a paper. And, you know, her and the woman, Laurie Gaines, who would eventually become my managing editor, both bullied me for the whole summer until I said, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, priest, that cover of my first issue as editor in chief of the Black Boys Costa Rica hangs in my office. It's hung wow. in my office everywhere I went because that was really the turning point. I ran that paper for a year. For that year, it was considered the best paper on campus, even though we were underfunded, undersized compared to the Daily Targum and some of the other uh, mainstream college campus weeklies and dailies on campus. It, it was a turning point in my life. Uh, my my associate editor who went on to become editor-in-chief after I graduated, actually worked with me at Black Enterprise for years, Matthew Scott. I mean, I, I can name name after name after name of that Black Voice legacy that uh, I'm a part of that produced some great journalists um, and editors, um, even after I've left. So that was kind of the turning point. And when I, I was three-fifths of the way through school, and at that point I said, I want to be a media professional. I want to be an editor. I want to be a journalist. It was too late to change my major. I was on, at school on scholarship and financial aid. Um, there was no money for me to just stay in school to pursue yet another, you know, 
degree. Mm-hmm. So I just got as much on, I just got as much, you know, off uh, on campus, you know, extracurricular experience working on newspaper on the college level and learning to lay out newspapers as possible outside the classroom. And that's what I went to the marketplace with when I started looking for a job. Now, this is interesting because you said you want to be a media professional. We have to put this in perspective. In 82, media was still a very narrow path in some respect, right? I mean, people listen to that today and they're like, oh yeah, media professional. Of course, he's in all of this stuff, but all of this stuff wasn't even a thought at that point. So, well, that's, you make a very great point. I mean, I can't say that when I was, you know, 23 coming out of college, right. I thought media professional. <laughs> I thought at that time I was like, I want to be the editor of a publication. Right. That's what I was thinking. I wanted, and it wasn't so much about writing because I, again, I've been writing my whole life and I was a good writer when I was on the staff with the papers that I wrote for on, on campus. It was the experience that I got dragged kicking and screaming into of running the paper, organizing mm. talented people, motivating them to meet deadlines. I mean, I, I, I got so many great friends. In fact, I'm not in a fraternity, but my experience running the paper and my connections with the people on my staff, you know, before, during, and since is almost like a fraternity-like experience. I mean, it yeah. includes women too. Yeah, so no, I came out thinking I want to be, I, this experience I had, 1981, that year running of the Black Voice, I said, this is what I want to experience every day. And that's what, what set the tone for at least what I, my, my mindset when I came out of college. Yeah, that, you know, that's pretty amazing. So, Alfred, I, you know, I've had a lot of discussion with sports people and CEOs and entrepreneurs on this podcast. And one of the questions that I always bring up is how instrumental or important do you think college is? Because the notion right now is that college, you can kind of go without college. And in a lot of cases, you can. But in your example, I mean, dealing with your counselor and, you know, being able to make pivots and really kind of find your footing and, you know, having people to, you know, push you along, whether you were kicking and screaming, almost pushing you into your destiny, that all was birthed out of college. So there is something to be said for people that go into college, maybe not fully knowing what they are or thinking they know who they are, but really finding their calling in college. Well, my philosophy on that now, first of all, I think college was absolutely the best thing for me. And I went, I fortunately ended up at the right college, Rutgers College, Rutgers University. It it was the right place for me. And I didn't know what it was going to be right before I got there because I didn't know anything about college before I went. But, you know, here's my thing. If you have a plan and a path to success that doesn't include college, no problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have four children. Um, All four have gone to college. Only one has completed college. But all four are pretty productive, happy people doing what they want to do. So I'm not the one that says, oh, college, you know, or, or bust. On the other hand, I am dead set against people going to college and spending and borrowing in particular mm-hmm. tons and tons of money. So my thing is you should go to college. Everybody should try to go to college, even if it's just community college, you know, get an associate's degree, take it as a small steps. I don't have a problem with that. My issue is more about how do you pay for it? And, you know, I came up in a generation where it was taught you borrow whatever you had to borrow. You couldn't get scholarships. You, you know, I mean, I, I was fortunate. I got a lot of grants because the era I came up in, there was a lot more federal and, and state aid than it is, there is today. Mm-hmm. But the, but now, you know, I see people who like, you know, you know they're borrowing goo gobs of money to get a degree that if you don't have a real plan for how you're going to, um, you know, monetize that. It's better to get the best education you can at the lowest cost possible because you can always leverage that yep. to where you want to go. 
And, and one of my mentees um, named Zach Rinkins, um, he wrote a book last year that I reviewed for Black Enterprise called I Am College Material. And it's a great book because he does a great, he provides great tools for helping parents and kids really analyze based on what you want to do for a living, you know, what's, what's the most you should be paying for your degree? And, and what's the best likelihood that you'll choose a career path that will help you to pay off that whatever, if you take one of any loans, um, that, that loan within 10 years? Because if it goes beyond 10 years, then it becomes an issue. Yeah. So, I mean, so, th- so I'm like, it's not that you shouldn't go to college. I think you should go to, go to college, but go to college with a real plan for making sure that you're, you're really getting the bang for your buck in terms of the time, money, and energy it takes to earn that degree. And it almost doesn't matter what your degree is in because a bachelor's degree is more about learning, in my opinion, mm-hmm. learning how to learn. You know, I mean, it, it, that was the valuable experience I had is relationships, is learning how to learn, is learning how to navigate systems and navigate, you know, policies, policies and politics and learning leadership. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I would never give back the years I spent at, at Rutgers because it was it helped shape me as an adult. Yeah. And my, t- my take on college, I've had two that have went through college. One has went through Texas A&M playing football, D1 school. And then I have another one that goes to Eastern mm-hmm. Carolina. And both of those needed to go to school. I think the principle behind that is sometimes knowing who you're not helps you to know who you are. And there's some people that just don't have the additional drive, if you will. And maybe that's not even the right word to go out and kind of scrape up and knock down doors and network with the people that they need to get connected with to to fulfill their dreams. And college helps usher some of that in, or at least opens up your, your vision behind some of that. So, you know, I, I, I think that book is necessary. I'm going to be sure to get it because I got two others that'll be coming up through college soon. Yeah. You'll want this book. And, and but the other point I want to make is that it's also about the maturity of the person. Yeah. Me coming straight out of high school, was a lot less mature and confident about my place in the world than I was five years later coming out mm. of college. You know, and, and so I'll give you an example. My son, who did do some college, what he's doing now is what he pretty much knew he always was going to do. It. He didn't always know how he was going to do it. I mean, he's, a, he's an independent um, rap artist. He's working on his fourth album. He has a great job during the day um, as an as a, uh, office manager, an IT person at a doctor's office. But what he's doing for a living is kind of what he always knew he wanted to do in terms of his mm. music. So while he did do some college, and, my, and me and his mother was like, just don't waste our money. If you don't really want to do it, don't do it. I know that's right. <laughs> and, <Yep>. <laughs> and he ultimately, you know, after a couple of shots, is like he figured out another way. But, but here, here's an example of someone who had a, a clear idea of what he wanted to do, and it was just a matter of figuring out how he could do it. And it, and it didn't, college didn't hurt, but it wasn't necessary. In my yeah. case, when I came out of high school, I barely knew which way it was up. I mean, I'd never been to a college campus until I my, you know, went to visit them. And I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living. Uh, you know, I majored in art because I was good in art. I had no idea what that was going to mean from a job standpoint. So my five years was not just about getting additional education. It was about me finding a sense of self and finding a sense of direction so that when I did finally go out into the marketplace, I had a real plan. What I was for what I was trying to do, and 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 most people don't come out of high school, unfortunately, with a plan for what they really want to do. Yeah, and to be fair, your son had different access, or at least seen you talking to different people and and living a different life than maybe you experienced. Which oh no doubt, my my kids grew up with both parents went to college. 
of my of my of their mother's siblings, all of them got at least a bachelor's degree, and mm. uh, her two uncles got advanced degrees. So, so his environment, the environment that my kids grew up in, and what they were exposed to, was radically different than mm-hmm. what I was not exposed to growing up, and, right. and that made a difference as well. Right, right. So we we get out of Rutgers. You have now made the decision. Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna start writing. But listen, y'all, I know this is a podcast and you can't see it, but this man stays fashionable. Now, he's probably in his pajamas right now, but I'm telling you, if you've seen pictures of Alfred, this brother's in a bow tie. He got his suit. He's suited and booted, as we would say. Um, So you go to a magazine, Modern Black Men, which we're going to get into that. And I'm sure you had a say in uh, how Modern Black Men overlays within Black Enterprise. But tell me about that that experience at that magazine. Like, was that your first coming out, if you will, within a magazine and, and having a footprint? Well, that was my first magazine, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about what I did before that. My first okay. real job after college was I worked at a black weekly newspaper in Brooklyn called Big Red News. At the time, had the largest circulation of any black paper in the city mm. at the time. And what was significant is not just getting a job there because I got hired as a part-time layout editor. It was that it was a paper that whenever they had cash flow issues, they would lay off all but the least least expensive employees that they needed to get the paper out. Mm-hmm. And that year, it was me and another recent college graduate, Roy Anderson, who had just finished Fordham University. And they b- pretty much left the kids in charge and <laughs> laid off all of their <laughs> older staff. And me and Roy took the opportunity to redesign the whole newspaper so that by the time they brought everybody back, they left us in charge. So that was a, so by the time I was 24, I was the editor-in-chief of one of the major black newspapers in New York City. Wow. I would show up places, they would think I was the intern, and I was like, no, I'm the editor. You <laughs> right. know, and, and that was a huge turning point. That's how I met Terry Williams of the Terry Williams Agency, um, Perse- the late Percy Sutton Apollo, um, that owned Inner City Broadcasting Radio and Apollo Theater. That put me on the map in New York City as a young talent to be reckoned with. So many of the, the relationships I established was when I ran the paper for two years, left there. Then I went to another black daily newspaper called The Daily Challenge. Publisher Tommy Watkins is still a friend and mentor of mine. And then from there, and again, to show you how relationships matter, one of the people I hired when I was running Big Red News was another woman who graduated from college the same year I did named Pamela Johnson. She's a filmmaker now, mm. but she went on to become one of the uh, editor of Essence. Mm. Um, she was like a travel editor initially. And, and spent several years at Essence, but she always knew that I wanted to get from newspapers to magazines. So when I was working at the Daily Challenge, she found out about the magazine you mentioned, Modern Black Men. She said, oh, they're looking for a senior editor. And it was because of her that I found out about op- that opportunity and got hired at Modern Black Men. And like you said, it was, a, it was just right for me. It was a black men's fashion lifestyle magazine. And I've been about style since I was a toddler. Mm. My mother, people, if you follow my Instagram or you follow me on social media, um, and I always tell people, don't follow your dreams, follow my Instagram <laughs> at Alfred Edmund Jr. <laughs> um, one of the things you'll know is that pretty much whenever you see me, I'm wearing a bow tie because yes. I just love bow ties. So that was from when I was in college, I took fashion design courses because I just like style. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. So when I got to Modern Black Men, it was, it was great. It was my first national magazine job. I was the number two editor at age at that point, 26, I was um, doing cover stories of everybody from Clinton Davis to Mayor Tom Bradley of Los Angeles to my best cover story, Miles Davis, 
And that was what got me recognized on a national level as a real up-and-coming star in the media business. And uh, yeah, I love being at Modern Black Men because it was, it was about style. And I, and I, I thought, I love style, but I learned about fashion when I got there. Mm. Like, I, I always had a sense of style. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons I'm passionate about bow ties is that the publisher of Modern Black Men, George C. Price, went to, I used to wear clip-on bow ties at that point. Mm-hmm. And I wore one to work, and he called me into his office. And I've told this story a number of times. And he said, clip-on bow ties are for proms and tacky weddings. <laughs> you are at a fashion magazine. If you're going to wear a bow tie, learn how to tie it. Mm. And, and at that point, I wore bow ties and straight ties. But that was uh, the summer of uh, the fall of 1986. It was Labor Day weekend. And I went home and threw away all my clip-ons, bought some very expensive traditional tie, hand-tied bow ties. And I spent all of Labor Day that day, uh, holiday, teaching myself how to tie a bow tie. Mm. And then I made myself wear a bow tie two to three times a week so I wouldn't forget to learn, you know, forget what I taught myself. You know, that was getting to the habit. Mm-hmm. And that's how I became known for bow ties. It wasn't that I intentionally only wanted to wear bow ties. I just didn't want to forget how to tie it after I had invested so much energy <laughs> in learning how to do it. And then I found that I liked them better anyway, and I liked them since I was a kid. So um, it kind of became a part of my brand. You went to Dapper Dan and was like, come on, man, dress me. Show me how to do this. No, I always knew how to dress, no, bro. I'm teasing. I, my mama, yeah, my, I wish I had known Dapper Dan earlier in his <laughs> career. But no, my mother really, I tell people, she was my first stylist. Mm. Um, she gave me and my brother a sense of appreciation for dressing appropriately. And there's a thing I say about, you know, learning how to stand out while fitting in. Mm. And I don't think my mother would have put it in those words, but I think it was, it was very important to her. And it's kind of a family value in my whole family, you know, both in the Edmonds and the Monroes, my mother's side of the family, that you, you got to know how to show up correct. And the fact that you don't have a lot of money or you may not be the best educated or you may not be a celebrity or you may not be an important person doesn't mean you don't present yourself to the world in a way that's appropriate. And and my mother, you know, drilled that into me and I still carry that with me to this day. I like that. I, I really like that philosophy behind that because I, I've seen that in action. I mean, I've been at Walgreens just kind of dressed down and you're at Walgreens in a suit, whether it's after church or something along those lines. And I'm telling you, people respond to you differently or they, you know, say, here you go, sir, versus if you're just in a, you know, dress down pants. And this isn't to condemn anyone, but it's just saying how people respond to you based on how you're dressed. As you pointed out, regardless how much money you have and maybe the stature you think you don't have, people tend to give you a little bit more space when you're when you're kind of dressed up, if you will. Man, I travel a lot. and. I still dress to travel, mm. and, you know, and that was the philosophy of, of Earl Graves, the founder of Black Enterprise, and we'll get into talking about that at some point. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, my wife still looks at me. She goes, we're, we're about to go someplace. I'm suited. It, it may not be, you know, I may not wear a tie, but I'll have a pocket square. I'll have some fly shoes. I'll be suited up. I'll have a hat. And you are right. I, I tell people, you can get first-class treatment without, you know, flying first-class. And I give For you a real? great example. You know, I don't fly first-class everywhere I go. But when they need, when they're looking for somebody to upgrade, and they say, "Oh, we got a first class seat. Would you like to upgrade?" Guess who they look at? Right. They come. They want somebody who looks like they belong in first <laughs> That's class. That's right. That's right. You know, when, when there's an issue and they decide who, you know, the, the, the flight attendant or the, or whoever is uh, making decisions around what they're going to do at, 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 when they're checking you in or whatever, people, you want to pretend. You can pretend that it doesn't matter whether you're wearing uh, what you're wearing, that you're wearing jeans and a sweatshirt and flip flops, but. People are influenced by, they make assumptions about who you are, positive or negative, about how you present. You. 
myself. Agreed. And I get treated well practically everywhere I go because the assumption is, I don't know who this dude is. But he's somebody. But he, he must be somebody because he, t- he looks like he takes himself seriously. So I better take myself seriously. That's right. So it only helps that I happen to like to dress that way. <laughs> you know, I, like, I don't know what I would do if I didn't like to dress that way. But it makes a big difference. No, I, I, I agree. I've, I've seen it. As I pointed out, I've been I've left church and went into Walgreens and, and been suited and booted because I literally just got out of church and you just get a much different response. People move different from you in the aisle. They may stare a little bit. So there, there's something to be said for it. So, so yep. look, you've been at Black Enterprise spans over three decades, which is amazing to me. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm shocked. I'm with like, you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not shocked, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I, I thank God, of course, that, you know, I mean, for people that tend to jump in and out of business today, especially in this generation, people, I think, spend somewhere between four to six years at any one job. 30 years is pretty impressive and still loving what you're doing, still being innovative. That that speaks a lot. But tell me, tell me about the beginning. What were some of the first things that you wrote about? What were some of the first things at Black Enterprise that uh, you started jumping into? What what where did you start creating your footprint there? Well, I came to Black Enterprise after leaving MBM. And I got to say, every job I've ever had, I left mm-hmm. before I had another job. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, I wasn't, I didn't plan to be a BE. For my original plan when I came to BE after doing a year at MBM was two to four years. Because my original career objective was to become the first black editor at GQ or Esquire. Mm-hmm. Which is what, another reason why my experience at MBM was important to me. Um, cause I was like, this is perfect for me, what I, where I think I want to go based on my interest in men's issues and, 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 and style and all that. So it gave you the best of all the worlds, basically. Exactly. So I came to black enterprise, mm-hmm. but I was not a business journalist when I got to black enterprise. I was a journalist who had interviewed business people before, but I wasn't a business journalist when I got to black enterprise. I got a job as an associate editor in charge of the news section and um, my first feature story was a profile of two Coca-Cola executives, Carl Ware and Chuck Morrison, at a time when it was rare for a corporation to have not one but two high-ranking black executives. And that was my first assignment. I flew down to Atlanta to interview them. My first cover story, that was for the, um, I want to say, the June 1987 issue. My first cover story was the August 1987 issue. And it was a cover story on a Barry Rand, Addison Barry Rand, who was had just been promoted to the U.S. marketing president of Xerox. Again, super mm-hmm. high-ranking black executive. Um, at that time, he was on track to perhaps become the first black CEO of Xerox. He ultimately became the first black CEO of Avis. And that was my first cover story. And I mentioned that because um, Barry Rand literally just passed away a couple of months ago. Just one of the, mm-hmm. the best men you would ever want to know. A legendary leader, legendary leader. And then the turnaround story of my career, I got the assignment to do what was then the deal of the year story. And every year, Black Enterprise would have a deal of the year story that would be the the December issue of that calendar year. So the December 1987 cover story was the deal of the year cover story. I got the assignment and I was to profile Reginald F. Lewis about his sale of McCall patterns at a 90 to 1 return. That was our deal of the year. Mm-hmm. And so I got the assignment. I'm, you know, nervous because again, I'm just I'm still learning how to really be a real business journalist. And Reginald F. Lewis, I mean, you know, everybody knows now is a legendary um, deal yes. maker. So it's like I can't sound like I don't know what I'm talking about when I talk to him. 
<laughs> so my my then editor, um, Cheryl Hilliard Tucker, who's a mentor today still, and, and Derek Dingle, who's now chief content officer, but was senior editor at the time at BE, um, they decided well, I needed to uh, go to the photo shoot for, you know, Reginald Lewis for the cover because I had met Reginald Lewis before since I'd been at BE, but I didn't really, they wanted me to get more of a rapport so that by the time I sat down with him for an interview, we would have kind of a, a you know, a connection and, and a little bit of familiarity. Mm -hmm. So I went down, the street was on Wall Street, right in front of near um, the Stock Exchange and the George Washington statue. If you, anybody knows that area, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm having a conversation with Reg Lewis, and I ask him a question um, that stops him in his tracks, and that is, what are you going to do next? And he stops, and I think I may have said something wrong. I'm like, uh-oh, what did I do? <laughs> and he says, what did you say? I said, what are you going to do next? And he had been getting all kinds of media coverage for the McCall deal um, around the world, Barron's, Fortune, Forbes, everybody, Wall Street Journal. And he said to me, you know, of all the people who have been interviewing me over the, or since this deal, is, you know, the news of this deal broke, you're the first person to ask me what I was going to do next. Wow. And then so he said to me, I have a saying, never talk a deal till it's done. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm working on something now that's 10 times bigger than this McCall deal. So I'm like doing the math in my head. I was like, well, you did McCall deal at 90 to 1 return. That could be like a billion dollars. That's I said, that's like a billion dollars. He turned away. He wouldn't say another word. <laughs> so I just excused myself, jumped on the number four train from Wall Street back to um, down our Chelsea area, Manhattan, where Black Enterprises was headquartered at the time. Ran, ran to Derek and Cheryl was like, we need to switch the covers. They were like, what do mm -hmm. you mean? I was like, no, we need to make the December cover, the November cover, and make the De November cover, which was already in the can. We had profiled um, Roy Roberts, who was one of the highest ranking African-American at General Motors at the time. I said, let's, he was our executive of the year. We usually did that in November. So he's like, let's put Roy Roberts for December and then see what happens you know, with the November cover. And we finally had to go to Mr. Graves, the founder, Earl Graves Sr. And he finally like, he said, okay, go with it, see what happens. And like, Shortly after that, the TLC Beatrice International deal broke, $987 wow. million leverage buyout. And I was the only one that had a scheduled interview. And, wow. and we were the only ones that ha have photos. Wow. With that now iconic cover where he has the cigar. Yes. And wow. And, you like, and, the, and, the, and of course, his biography, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? That yes. photo is from that same shoot, like you said, with the, with the cigar and all of that. And that I was yep. at that shoot, and and that was that was a Black Enterprise cover shoot. Um, Jeffrey Scales was the photographer that actually did the did the, did the photography, and but that story, and, and me when, and me having to really get a crash course on what a leverage buyout is and how it works, so that I wouldn't understand what I was talking about. And when I interviewed Reginald Lewis for that story, when we ultimately sat down for our interview, and Reginald Lewis, if if anybody still has a copy of that issue, and it's a collector's item now, it's hard to find. Yes, it but is. I tried. If you, if you open the lead, I, it, it opens with us, him selling off a division of uh, Beatrice International Foods to raise the money to, to um, complete the leverage buyout. And I was in the room because he let me sit in while he was negotiating. He said, they'll just think you work for me. Just sit in the corner and watch. And they'll just think <laughs> it's just another black guy in the room. I mean, that's the kind of dude he was. He's like, trust me, just I'll let you. He didn't have to give me that kind of access. But that experience really it changed everything it made me into a real business journalist 
it, it was uh, my first real big scoop at, at, a, at a national publication. From that point until Mr. Lewis is passing away several years later, I did all the interviews with him. And when he didn't like something, he didn't call Mr. Grace. He called me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, you know, I did a second cover story on him the following year because TLC Beatrice was our company of the year. And we had a, a, a sit down Q&A conversation. And yeah, it was, that was the turning point of my career. By then, I'd been promoted to senior editor. So I got a promotion to, um, you know, number three position on staff. And, and that kind of set the tone for my trajectory since then. Well, let me tell you something. So this is how you and Mr. Lewis always played a role in my life. So 1996, I'm at Half Price Books. And I believe, and maybe my my dreams are mixed up, but I believe getting a cover of Black Enterprise at this time, different magazines. I, I couldn't necessarily afford at that moment to go out and get subscriptions. And at that time, I believe it was $26, $30. And some people are like, that's a month. But I was still a young guy. But I was just starting to change my frame of reference, my my mind about what I wanted to do with my finance. And Black Enterprise, I promise, was the first magazine that I started digging into from front to back, obviously because Fortune and some other magazines didn't resonate with me. Ink and all these other ones weren't out. And here I see Reginald F. Lewis on the front with cigars. I smoke cigars to this day, probably because of Rev- Reginald F. Lewis. I always, <laughs> I, I always wanted to be on the cover of Black Enterprise magazine with a cigar like Reginald F. Lewis. And when I found out that you were the person instrumental behind getting the photo with your team, uh, which you wrote an article about and you gave you gave credence to those people that that did it. I just thought the whole thing was amazing. And you did within that that post here. And I'll make sure to share it on the podcast page. You talked about how I believe he's getting dressed up or someone's measuring him. I don't know what it was, but he just had this gaze at you. And you asked that question yeah. that you just brought up and he breaks from the gaze. And you think like, oh, my God, he's, he's going to tell me I'm a rookie. It's time for you to go. And he <laughs> right. he turns around and tells you, like, nobody asked that question of me before that that must have been a cosign from because uh, here you are trying to build up your confidence to really, you know, to really for someone to really take you seriously as a as a business interviewer and as a as a writer. And you asked the one thing that other season, quote unquote, seasoned people have not touched on. And sometimes it's the simple. I mean, people sometimes think so deep when people just are looking for practical conversation that that, that whole experience, Alfred. From the cover, Reginald F. Lewis, just his journey, of course, and we've talked about that, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But man, it's it's mind blowing, and I I I salute you, man. You just, I think you've shaped a lot of people, including myself, by what you did with that cover, breaking the news of TLC Beatrice and all that kind of stuff. It's 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 amazing. One of the best things about being at Black Enterprise, if not the best thing. And anybody who works in content in Black Enterprise, who has ever worked in black content in Black Enterprise, will tell you this, is knowing that the vision of our founder, Earl Graves Sr., has spawned just so many inspirational successes that then inspired other successes that then inspired other successes. Mm. So there's two things that, that we never get tired of hearing of that we hear all the time. One, that people have set a goal that they're going to get on the cover of Black yes. Enterprise. Like, mm-hmm. so because that's, that's what it's about, you know, you know, and it doesn't even matter whether you get there or not. Is that I know so many people who are successful because they discovered BE and it was like, oh, now I know I can yes. do this and I'm going to make that my yes. goal, you know, 
And the other thing is, is, is hearing people talk about that one story or that one article or that one um, issue that helped them to figure out what they wanted to do and who they wanted to be. And, and that's, that's definitely the case with the Reginald Lewis story. Um, we did a follow-up feature. I didn't write it. Um, Greg Bell, who is the son of Travers Bell, which if you want to know black business history, Travers Bell was a, a major uh, first um, you know, major black investment firm owner on Wall mm. Street. But anyway, Greg did a great story on the 25th anniversary of the TLC Patriots deal where he interviewed so many different people from Bob Johnson, founder of BET, to uh, Ray McGuire, who's a, you know, a top Wall Street executive. Because Reginald Lewis's story influenced not only traditional entrepreneurs, there's a whole generation of blacks on Wall Street that said, oh, I can play in that game. There's a whole generation of black corporate lawyers who figured out what they wanted to do based on that story. Um, there's a whole generation of asset managers, investment company owners, for, for example, Eugene Prophet, mm -hmm. who was um, a football player with the New mm -hmm. England Patriots when that Beatrice story came out. And he was thinking about the end of his career and what he was going to do. And he, he's, he said that story was what got him set on the path of eventually starting um, the profit funds when he finished, became, a, a, again, an asset management investment company. And to, to show you how things go full circle, I bought profit funds and, and, and my investment in those funds was how I helped pay for my oldest daughter's college education. Wow. So this ripple effect of us learning, inspiring, passing on that fire, passing on that baton to change people's lives. You know, I mean, Reg Lewis is that Earl Graves is that, and 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 I'm just I'm just glad to be you know a part of the a part of the legacy, man. It's it's, it's hard to put into words how big a blessing that is. And to yeah. you know, look at my my daughter, and, and my daughter is a born entrepreneur, my oldest daughter. Um, and I you know I was still, just told a story on Facebook a couple of weeks ago about how on her sixth birthday she got part of her um, birthday gift was a, working at Black Enterprise for the day. Wow. And how Mr. Graves took her and sat her sat her at his desk as a six year old, and sat her at the head of the boardroom table, and made it clear to her, you know, you have a right to be in these seats. And and now, you know, she's a young woman doing amazing things. And again, I can go on forever and ever and ever. But yeah, Reggie Lewis is all that, and and the ripple effects are still happening um, with from um, what Reggie Lewis accomplished. That's that's amazing, man. You're you're a blessed man. And it, it, it's it's proven that as long as we reach our hand out to other people, just as you pointed out, the ripple effect, you know, goes way past even in uh, particularly in Mr. Lewis's case, your life. Right. I mean, there's your children and your children's children will be be a benefactor of that relationship for you back in 1987. That's amazing. No doubt. No doubt. I want to thank today's sponsor, Bloom. Do you guys have a 401k of some kind? You're always wondering if you have the right investments, if you're picking the right thing and you're just not fully sure. Well, Bloom with three O's, B-L-O-O-O-M, does free analysis of your current employee-sponsored retirement plan. You get to understand your investments at a glance and uncover unnecessary hidden fees. Then you put them to work. You put Bloom to work with your account for $10 a month, and they'll essentially fix your 401k by optimizing your fund choices and minimizing those hidden fees. And then at that point, you just sit back and let them do what they're going to do. Now, I found out about Bloom because of David Stein. I was listening to the podcast Money for the Rest of Us, and he mentioned Bloom, and I just wanted to check to see if I was picking the right investments. 
And I wasn't that far off. There was a few tweaks, but the concept itself of Bloom is amazing. Go in today's podcast notes and check it out for yourself. Bloom, B-L-O-O-M for your 401k analysis. Let's get back to the show. So, you know, something I wanted to talk about because you, Black Enterprise, has managed to go from, you know, purely a, you know, paper publication magazine and has shifted and done very well online, has expanded its conferences, has just done a lot outside of the magazine, which I think is pretty incredible because if I'm doing the math based on the direction that some of the magazines are going, if you guys had not made the pivot in other areas, i.e. social media, conferences, other network building opportunities, you know, I'm afraid to say it, but I don't know if Black Enterprise would be around. How, you know, Listen, how- I'm not afraid to say it because I've said it many times. Listen, so first of all, we got to give credit to our current CEO, um, mm-hmm. Earl Butch Graves Jr., who he really has been the, the primary builder and, and extender of the, his father's legacy, but recognizing that the way we do it now can't be the same as it was at the beginning. I mean, right. who's really tried to forge new paths. And he'll be the first to tell you that some of this wasn't planned. We were just in the right place at the right time. For example, mm-hmm. we started doing li- our live networking events back in the 80s and our big national ones in the early 90s. And at the time, we figured those were kind of ancillary products to the main event, which is the magazine. Now, events is the biggest driver of our business. And and, and most magazines that are still alive, certainly business magazines, the reason they're still alive is because they have major, you know, event series or national events. And we have the Women of Power Summit, which is coming up end of February in Las Vegas. We have Black Men Excel in the week leading into Labor Day. We have the uh, Entrepreneur Summit, which is being rebranded forward in Charlotte. Those events are now drivers of the business. When we first started them, we, we, you know, we, you know, we saw them as ancillary. Mm. Um, so having those assets has helped the Black Enterprise brand survive the, the changeover in, from print to digital. What's coming first, Alfred? Is it the people that are consuming the content going to the events or the events? And then they're like, I got to consume this, this content because I was told it's about, less the... about that. Yeah. Then where the dollars are coming from. So print me- media spending has been declining, mm-hmm. um, you know, pretty much since, well, now it's been more than 10 years with the emergence of digital. So what what's happened is any public, any media company that was dependent on print advertising had no, no way to survive. Mm-hmm. But because we always had live events, print, and then, um, as you said, we, we, um, we're always good at social media, which is, uh, I'll take a little credit for that because I was the first editor to represent the media brand of Black Enterprise on social media back in, I'm about to say MySpace. Some people ain't going to remember what that was, <laughs> but I was, edit- I was, edit- I had a MySpace um, profile as editor of Black Enterprise. And, you know, I've always, I've, I've always been very um, enthusiastic about social media since the late nineties. So that helped us move forward and become really strong in social media before we knew we had to be strong. Mm. So what so, but the biggest shift you want to focus on is that as advertising spending and print declined, advertising spending in digital and events grows. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't have to create events. We already had them. Mm-hmm. And to your point, my, my, I was, I've said that I think we would have been kind of out of business by now if we didn't have our live events. And we didn't have um, a platform in digital that we were willing to invest in 
because that's the only way to survive now. Now, the magazine is still important. Um, we're, we're a quarterly in 2019 because the magazine is still kind of the crown, the crown jewel. Sure. And how you know that is, is no matter where you could have been profiled on the website, you can speak at an event. But everybody's goal is still to somehow get into the magazine. Right. Right. So it's still important to the brand. But from a revenue driver standpoint, it now supports live events and, and, and is an extension of digital, whereas 10 years ago, it was the, the hub and everything else extended from it. Mm, yeah, that's that's really good. And I, I, I'm, I'm really impressed by the transition Black Enterprise has been able to make the impact that it has. I've this year become a contributor to Black Enterprise. How you guys have welcome aboard. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. How you guys have aggregated these great minds and entrepreneurs and thought leaders and other people to have a voice on black enterprise that, you know, otherwise in some sense may have been closed off. I think it's, you know, I think it's perfect in all its ways uh, from a content driver for black enterprise and just to lend a voice to other people that otherwise may not be a, a quote unquote writer for black enterprise. You, you know, one thing that I find interesting, Alfred, is that outside of you know, maybe sports or hip hop or rapping of some kind, you really still don't see publications. Again, people can think of Inc., Fortune, all these others, but you really don't see publications that I know of. Maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me that highlight black business entrepreneurs and other people. So you guys still kind of have a chokehold on the vertical, maybe is the right word. You guys still kind of have it cornered a little bit. Am I am I right or wrong about that? Well, we are the we are the 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 authority. Yeah. So we like you say we're national and, and in some ways the international leader on black business achievement, black entrepreneurship, black executive achievement. We um, publish it annually the the uh, authoritative report on blacks on corporate boards every year, and we're obviously an authority on black economic advancement and black wealth. Um, so that that is true. Now I, I also give props to. Uh, publications on the local level. There are a lot of smaller regional and local publications. For example, we have the Network Journal in New York, who who is, does a great job of focusing on those people on the local level. Uh, mm. So, so you know, and I, and I also know, of, you know, as you said about the way talent and content can be gathered from around the country, from whether it's bloggers, podcasters, there are some great people doing telling the stories of black business achievement, black mm-hmm. wealth, black leadership around the country. So it is no longer about being the only source because people like you, you know, are, are able to help us to identify things that we necessarily can't see from our offices in New York City. Good point. You know, uh, you know, so I, I tell people we're we're kind of the uh the leader and the the authority to help bring value to all of the great stories um of black business achievement. And some people who are doing great things in, you know, Phoenix, maybe they maybe it's not enough national impact to make a black enterprise, but it doesn't mean what they're doing is not important. So it's good to have somebody on the local area saying, "Listen, pay attention to this this um, black entrepreneur who's doing great some great things in this market." I love that insight. That's really good. So one thing I know that you and your wife have is the grown zone, but I'm going to ask you something that you you asked Reginald Lewis. You know what? What? What's next for you? Well, I am at the stage of my life and career where I'm saying, "What can I? How much of my time can I do what I want to mm-hmm. do?" Meaning, 
to get paid as much as I can to do the things I really want to do. So part of that is Black Enterprise. So I'm a senior vice president and now executive editor at large at Black Enterprise because I'm still passionate about the mission of Black Enterprise and, and I still you know, uh, play an important role in realizing that vision and that mission. But my life is built on four different pillars that I'm passionate about, and everything has to fit within those four pillars. It's um, financial fitness, mm-hmm. of which Black Enterprise, and I'm also the host of um, radio features. I was a host of Money Matters on AURN um, up until the end of this year. I am now the host of a new radio show, a co-host with DC Marshall, um, Be Lifted Up, which is a finance and faith syndicated radio show that just debuted. People can find that on WLIB.com if they want to hear it online, but it's on terrestrial radio syndicated around the country. So congrats but again, finance. Yep. So, um, but so it's financial fitness, physical fitness. If you follow me on social media, you know that I'm a passionate competitive amateur bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. So um, training, try to get back to DFAC, DFAC world finals in Miami in this year. That's my goal. So physical fitness, financial fitness, mental fitness. I'm a big advocate of mental health, particularly for black people and black men. And relationship fitness, um, and that's the grown zone. My wife and, and my business focus on relationship education and, and the importance of stable relationships in order to have financial, business, and career success. Um, so all the things that I do, whether it's grown zone, be lifted up radio, black enterprise, um, me being a bodybuilder, my public speaking around the country, is all designed to push those four pillars that are part of my brand as the success expert and people who see me on social media will see that I, that my brand is the success expert. I'm about whatever it takes for people to actually succeed and sustain that success over the long haul. Mm. Um, And so with the things you see me doing, whether I'm keynoting at at a conference, I'll be speaking at um, the wall street project economic summit here in New York next week. Um, Whether you see me writing about the connection between stable, healthy relationships and your ability to sustain your business or your career or protect your finances. Um, you'll see a lot of stuff because of Valentine's Day. A lot of people have shared some of the stuff that I've written and talked about on that topic. You know, my, my, my point about physical fitness is that, in particular, we black men die or get sick in our peak earning years. Mm-hmm. And that has a direct effect on our ability to maximize our earning potential. It has a direct effect on the, the wealth creation potential of the black community as a whole. So it's not just about having six-pack abs and, you know, and all that, all the cosmetic stuff. It's about how do you extend your earning power and your earning potential, and you can't do it if you're sick or you're dead. That's good. You know, so all those things weave into my personal philosophy and what it takes to overcome adversity and to maximize your talent, your gifts, your potential to get to do what you love, to get paid as much as you can for as long as you can and, and to enjoy your life. And so, so. You know, that's a that's a long winded way no, of I, just talking about how all the things that I yeah. do, but it's all designed to connect in a way that fits a, a larger brand message about what it means to be successful over the long no, term. No, I think that makes sense. I, I, I think it, it is instrumental to being whole in a sense, right? I mean, you find a lot of people that have amazing wealth and they don't necessarily have the health to enjoy it and vice versa. They have great health, but they're broke. Uh, so I think all of these different parts. Now, one thing you brought up, which I, I think is very key, particularly in these times, is mental health. How, how do you personally address your own mental health? The, is fitness part of it? And then do you do you do other things like meditate, read? I mean, what else do you do to kind of foster positive mental health? 
When I say mental health, I mean being very proactive about protecting your mental health the same way you're protecting your physical health through diet and exercise. So for me, yeah, I'm a a person of faith. I was raised in the church. My grandfather's a Baptist minister. So I understand the importance of prayer. But prayer is not a substitute for therapy. Right. Prayer is not a substitute for meditation. Prayer is not a substitute for an ongoing regimen designed to protect your mental health and keep it healthy, but also to prepare yourself when you are going to have mm. trauma. You know, you're, there's going to be times when you have mental illness and you got to deal yes. with that. You need to have, you know, times there's going to be trauma in your life and it's going to impact you. And what we have been taught is that because it's mental, you should almost pretend it doesn't exist. And, oper- and then, of course, people have breakdowns. So in my case, um, I've been seeing um, therapists off and on since the late 90s. But right now, what I have is a standing weekly appointment. And I'm perfectly fine right now with my mental right. health. But so it's about prevention now. So I have a standing weekly appointment every Saturday with my therapist. If I'm traveling and I can't do it, we just don't do it. But if I'm in town, I go sit with him for an hour. And we say, okay, how are things going? What are you thinking about? How are you feeling? What are some big things that are coming up that you got to kind of be prepared to deal with? What are some things that that um, may have happened that you haven't totally dealt with? Let's unpack it so that I can operate at peak efficiency in the rest of my life. And people are like, how do you do so much? And how do you always seem to be so sturdy and, and strong? It's like, it's not an accident. I, I am doing a proactive on purpose regimen mm-hmm. for my mental health. And I'm a big champion of we have to get rid of the stigma that says if you see a therapist or if you see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, something's wrong with you. Totally. Or or black people don't do that. Or you need to go take it to God. Mm. And, you know, at our Black Men Excel um, Summit that we just had in, in Latin, for 2018, um, we did a whole session on mental health that was like a packed house, which is a big deal. 600 people in the room. Mm. And I remember once upon a time, you couldn't get 30 people in a room to talk about that. Right. But. But but we did this panel and a guy stood up and said, well, where does God fit into all this? And I said, I thank God I got a therapist. You know, <laughs> God, God gives us the help we need, but we got to accept it. You know, and so so my thing is we need to look at seeing a therapist or a counselor or somebody in the same way. We don't think it's strange that we should go get an annual physical. Right. You know, for our bodies. Right. Um, and there's nothing wrong with you. And, and my, my my second oldest daughter in particular. Um, who was uh, it was challenged with a uh, borderline personality disorder that disrupted her college education. Mm-hmm. She's doing fine now, Good. but I'm proud of her because she's a living example of what it means to say, I'm going to take care of myself. I don't care what people think. I'm going to do what I need to do. And if that means I need to see a therapist and deal with my issues, I'm going to do that. And she, you know, she comes from a, her mother's Jamaican. So the Caribbean community isn't always exactly comfortable with this idea that you should see um, you know, a therapist either, but she stood up and for her own self and said, this is what I need to do um, to make myself whole and happy and productive. And so anyway, I, I'm just very, very, very passionate about that. I'm very open about my my um, championing of therapy on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and on social media. There's a lot of great brothers who are working hard in this space. Uh, for example, Philip Roundtree out of Philly, mm-hmm. um, who's a, a BE modern man has a weekly um, men's, it's not a therapy group, but it's a group of men that come together to talk about their issues. And, and, and it, it, so, so it's an important turning point, I think we are in, in the black community in particular, that we start looking at mental health as no different than our physical health. There's just some things we should be doing all along and not waiting for us to break down before we decide 
or worse, wait for somebody to either kill themselves or kill somebody else because we decide that we should just, you know, not really deal with that. Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. I'm a I'm a complete advocate for mental health. I believe, you know, we all should go for annual checkups. I, I know I do. I use my dad in some sense as the barometer. He's the kind of guy that, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it necessarily. And I'm I'm the opposite. I'm almost hypochondriac that if I feel even something shaking wrong, I'm like, time for the time to go get it checked out. Because, I, you know, I, I know that I'm here for legacy. Right, Alfred? I'm here for my kids. I'm here for to see their kids. And, you know, I'm glad that black men in particular are taking a whole different perspective when it comes to our physical health. Now, of course, there's things that I personally have to work on when it comes to fitness. I look at you and, uh, you know, I'm at Orange Theory and I'm like, maybe I shouldn't call in today. Alfred over here showing off his pecs and abs and carrying on on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I need to maybe I need to go do something today. But, uh. I, I, you know, I, I thank you for that because you're right. You're on Instagram. You show, hey, here's my bodybuilding. Here's what I'm getting into. And I'm like, now this dude has, you know, a few years on me and he's out here. It just lets people know that it's possible. You see other black men. You know, you we pointed this out, too, about, you know, examples of people that are writing and not necessarily having those examples. Well, we have examples of yes. generation of men in particular. I'm talking because I'm a man that are now doing it and taking care of their bodies and taking care of their health and saying, yes, I'm, I have anxiety. I'm trying to work with it this way. And I talk to a therapist that opens up the gate for 600 men to sit in a room and have that discussion without feeling ashamed about it. So yeah, it, it's, we're giving each other permission. Yes. And that's, that's what I, when I show what I'm doing on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or wherever is like, we need to give each other permission to do what's best for us. And and I talk to brothers. I'm like, we wouldn't say if it ain't broke, don't fix it with our cars. Right. Like we, we take scheduled maintenance because we know if we just let it go, what was a minor fix, you know, just getting the oil change <laughs> when you're supposed to can turn into the car being totaled because the trim, transmission drops out. That's right. So I'm like, you shouldn't be taking better care of your car than you take care of your body. When your body is the real, you know, mode of transportation that you got to live in and you can mm. get another car. <laughs> That's you know? right. And, and, you know, so it's really about change. It's about a commitment to self-love and self-care and, and the grown zone of relationship education. That's the foundation of what we do with our relationship education work that you the standard of care you give yourself will always be higher than what you can expect anyone else to give you. Mm. So if you don't love yourself. And then you're looking for someone else to fill that void. They're either going to disappoint you or they're going to exploit you mm. because you're you have the primary responsibility of loving yourself. You are the love of your life. And if you if you take that responsibility, then you will be able to attract and recognize those people who are good for you and will love you the way you should be loved. That That's such a good name. Grown Zone. Is that. I like the name because, you know, I'm 44, going to be 45 soon. And um, it, it kind of lets me know, like, hey, man, this is this zone is a safe place to have grown discussions. And it's time for us to take ourselves seriously as we talk about relationships with other men. It's OK to tell other men that I love you and I appreciate you. And it's OK to love your wife and love your wife unconditionally and only your wife. And. I really like the concept of grown zone and how you're kind of you're you're kind of fostering these relationships 
with ourselves, but then with other people too. I mean, it's pretty cool. But where'd you, well, where did you, where me and my wife came up with the concept was yeah. recognizing that adulthood is not your final stage of personal development. Mm. Like the only thing it takes to become an adult is to survive puberty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, that's all it takes. You live long enough, you get past 18 or 21, you are an adult. Right. But a lot of the decisions that we make that we have the adult right to make are unhealthy and destructive. So that's when we're saying not every adult choice is a grown decision. Grown is about a, being a, in a permanent state of self-loving, responsible, personal growth. Because that never ends. Once you're grown, it never ends. And you have to commit to being grown. You just got to survive to get to adulthood. Right. You got to commit to being grown. And so the grown zone is about a whole, it's a, it's a, it's a system of decision making to help you learn the difference between an adult choice and a grown decision. That's so Everything cool. you have the adult right to do is not the grown thing to do, particularly in a relationship. Right. So by my own standard, um, based on what we decide in the grown zone or, or how we define a grown man, I didn't become a grown man until my late 40s. Mm. Even though I had been an adult, a responsible, productive adult, all of the, up until that point, mm. and the, one of the ways you could see I wasn't grown was how I approached relationships and 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 the difficult marriages because I'd been married twice before I married Zara mm-hmm. because I was making adult decisions that were not necessarily grown that weren't grown healthy decisions, mm, that's and that's what, so that's where the philosophy of the grown zone came about. The people said they were grown and sexy. And most of the decisions people make in the name of being grown and sexy is neither grown <laughs> nor sexy. <laughs> you see some of the messiness in your own family on TV. That's right. You know, I'm grown though. I'm You're grown. Saying. I said, yeah, but that's not it's sure ain't pretty though. Yeah. <laughs> it sure ain't pretty, you know. And yeah. so our, our mission is to get people from adult. Because I tell people, you shouldn't have, I tell my kids, and, and, I, and they listen, so I'm proud of them. You shouldn't have to wait until your late 40s or your early 50s to decide to be grown. You don't, that, it doesn't have to take that long. Mm. It only takes that long if you're not intentional about it. And we all know people who are like old enough to be our parents who ain't grown. It's still silly as all get out, mm-hmm. you know, and the things that they do and the things they believe in. You're like, they ain't never going to grow up, you know. But it's a choice. And, and, our, and the whole point of Grown Zone is to give people a framework, and particularly with romantic relationships, to make healthy choices for themselves. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention our, our book, which is, which is, of course, every Valentine's Day Please. sales spike, Loving in the Grown Zone, which is the book with, with me and my wife, Zara Green. And, and it's a, literally a guide to making healthy decisions in pursuit of um, relationships of honor, esteem and respect. And it's, uh, it's it, we call it, it's the, you need the driver's manual to learn how to drive. This is the lover's manual to learn how to love safely. I love it. That's really good stuff. So look, I don't grownzone.com. Grownzone.com. All right. We'll be sure to put it up on the podcast page. So I don't I don't want to hold you much longer. You've been gracious with your time. Just a couple more questions here. But you built a good life for yourself. And you've talked to so many uh people that have been instrumental in the business world and otherwise, maybe even in some cases, people that we haven't heard of on a public stage, if you will, but that are still intr- instrumental in their own community and other areas like that. What are some key things that you've taken away from those conversations with tastemakers out there that you can share with the people in the podcast today? Maybe one or two things that as you walk away, you look at your 30 plus years at Black Enterprise, all the innovative people that you've talked to, what what does that summate to for you? Wow. Hmm. Well, let me think. 
here's here's probably the biggest takeaway I've, I've gotten from probably the biggest influence on my my life because of me being at Black Enterprise for so long, which is Earl Graves Sr. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he used to tell us when I first was a young editor on staff was excellence, no excuses. Excellence, no excuses. Excellence, no excuses. Meaning he wanted us not to operate from the standpoint of, you know, oh, we're a small publication. We're a black publication. We're, a, you know, we, we don't have this and we don't have that. It was like, we got to deliver excellence and then everything else will take care of itself. Mm. And, 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 and that worked for me. It's probably another reason I've been at BE so long and I fit into the culture so well. Because my mother used to always say, not being the best is no excuse for not doing your best. Mm-hmm. So, so a common theme um, among all the high achievers that I've met in different walks of life at Black Enterprise, whether I wrote about them, interviewed them on a, con- on a stage at a conference, or you know, covered them in some way, is whether you're talking about somebody like a Will Smith to Ken Chenault, who former um, CEO of American mm-hmm. Express, mm-hmm. is they all had this thing about just bring your best. It may not be enough, but it should never be less than your best. Mm. You know, and, and, and it sounds simple, but so many people will phone it in. Mm-hmm. Well, when, when somebody says bring your best, what does that mean outside of the dress? What I mean, somebody is looking and saying, what if my best isn't good enough? What what does that mean, Alfred? You shouldn't be worried about whether your best isn't good enough. You should be worried about whether you're honestly doing your best. Mm. If you're let, being, let you, if uh, you're uh, being uh, genuinely you is what you're saying. Genuinely you doing your very, very best. We all know when we're not really doing our best. Mm-hmm. We all know when you know, we're not really trying to put up. It's being fully present. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's coming early. It's staying late. It's, it's doing those jobs. This is, this is what I'm saying. You can't be just the best at the things you want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can't do something small and seemingly unimportant with excellence, Who's going to trust you with something big? I mean, that's biblical right there. That's good. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know, so so I, I've been fortunate to have both examples and people like Reg Lewis and Earl Graves. And by words, people are pouring into me saying to me, you may not be the best at this. But if you get a reputation for always bringing your best to doing your very best, that people can see the effort to see that you care about how your reputation and what you bring to the table and being an asset. Um, to the equation, even if you're not the best possible, everybody can't be LeBron James, everybody can't be Serena Williams, but you can play so hard and and be so committed to bringing something to the table that you'll be of value anyway. People will want you on the team. Mm. An- a- another example is my my mentor Cheryl Hillier Tucker, um, who, who's if you look her up, is one of the probably the legends among Black women in the magazine industry or women, people in general in the magazine industry, but certainly black women. That's She's the first one that when you first got to Black Enterprise, you were writing. But even though, I think you said this somewhere where even though, you know, what you were writing needed to be edited a little bit more intensely, she still saw past all that and saw the, the greatness in you in the very beginning. Is that the person we're talking about here? Yep, sure. You're talking, okay. you're right. Okay. Uh, and, and she 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 met me at, when I was still editor of MBM. Mm-hmm. And we were doing an event for the National Association, or New, the New York Association of Black Journalists that happened to be held at Black Enterprise. And we had a conversation, me and Cheryl, after the event was over, that was just casual conversation. I barely remember what I said, but she made up her mind that if she ever got a chance to hire me based on that conversation, that she would. And, and you know, a year later, she had a chance to hire me and she did. And, and that brings up another great piece of advice that I got from her and others is, your A game should be your only game. 
Mm. If I was playing less than my A game in this casual conversation that could have been seen as a throwaway conversation after this event, who knows what I might have said and done, you know, that would have made her think, no, nah, this is not somebody that I would really want to. That's right. But but I was I was raised to believe that my A game is my only game, that your B and your C game should not be even on the table, because if there's a B and a C game, that says that it's acceptable to sometimes do less than your best. Mm. So you think you're not on, and I'll tell you a, a true story that I've told many um, people, including young people, of this young woman I know who was at a conference. And you know, if it's a black conference, we're going to have DJs and we're going to have parties. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what we do. <laughs> Ain't no shade, no shade. I ain't going to get mad. <laughs> but it's just what we do. It could be funeral directors. It could be bankers. It could be Wall Street execs. But there's like an unwritten law that if more than 100 of us get together at a hotel. Have to, man. Somebody better be, it, be on the ones and twos. Y- you better point. have a DJ somewhere. That's right. Better or, or it never <laughs> happens. So anyway, we, this was, sister was at a conference. It was at National Association of Black Journalists Conference. And, you know, and we were, young, you know, everybody knows I love to dance. I love to party. So you, you got some music on. We all getting down. Yeah. So we're at this conference and she's thinking. Yeah, I'm going to get my freak on, and she's up on this dude, and she's she has a bad body anyway, mm. and you know she's had a little drink, drink. But in her mind, I'm off duty. This is a party, mm. you know, whatever. And to, to make a long story short, maybe a couple months later, she ends up on a job interview. Guess who's on the other side of the desk? The dude she was up on. The dude she was all up on. Oh, man. Now, he never said anything. There was not even necessarily a sign that he remembered who she was. Yeah. But she will never know. Yes, correct. Yes. She will never know whether that influenced anything about. And so, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a good time at the party. But you are always on. Yes. Yeah. You're not at your family barbecue. (laughs) You're not at, (laughs) you know, you're at a professional conference. That's right. You know. And so that lesson, and this is, again, a friend of mine who's done very well in her career, and I'm not going to mention her name since then, but she told me that story, and I've shared that story to show that you always need to remember how you present yourself. You, you always do, unless it's your, 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 you know, you're, you're at your family reunion, well, that's your family. Yes. But if you're at a conference and an event, or you're at a club, and, and you're, you're, you should always be mindful of how you're being perceived. And you want to protect your reputation because that's the most important thing you have. Totally. When all is said and done, that's the most important thing you have. And and there's so many people who think, well, when I'm at work, I'm going to be professional. But when I'm you know not on, I'm going to be myself. And my goal has always been my professional me and my personal me should be consistent. Yes. So I don't have to worry about my behavior and my choices and my conduct. I tell young folks about that, about social media. I'm like, look, you may be off of work, but trust and believe that they look at Twitter and that that's who they summarize you are. Oh, 90, 96% of job employers, the first thing they look at after they see your resume and think they're interested in you is they go look to see your social media. Profile. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I tell young people that all the time. Yep. Uh, Alfred, I, I, man, I could talk to you for hours. You are such... Man, you just you just embody so much, so much wisdom from all the people that you spoke with, your own wisdom. I mean, it, it means a lot that I've had this conversation with you. And um, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time out to talk with me. And, you know, for the sake of others, if they want to follow you, maybe they're not following you on, on, on Instagram and they want to see what you're doing. Feel free to share your stuff. How can people reach out? Look follow what you got going on. Well, let me first say, I really want to urge everyone to go to blackenterprise.com forward slash soar. 
It's a new series of, of one-day events we're doing in partnership with TDJ's Enterprises. The first one is in Atlanta on April 6th, and it's about health, wealth creation, and unlimited income opportunities. And we're really excited about it, so I definitely you know, want you, your listeners to avail yourselves of that in Atlanta. And if it's successful in Atlanta, we're going to take it to other cities. Good. So we'll link blackenterprise.com forward slash sword. That would be great. Yeah. And you can follow me on any social media platform. I'm, I'm really into social media, <laughs> but Alfred Edmund Jr., A-L-F-R-E-D-E-D-M-O-N-D-J-R. That's where I am everywhere. And you won't be disappointed. My social media game is tight. I have a good time. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and uh, the, the, Priest, I just want to thank you because listen, I always tell people I'm just a vessel. Mm. You know, I'm not the source of all this, um, but I'm also not the final destination. And I try to remind people who are successful at that. You are not the source Mm -hmm. and you are not the final destination. You are a vessel. So all I do when I'm having these kinds of conversations with you who who have a very great platform to reach other people um, in in your podcast is I'm only pouring out what was poured into me. Yes. Thank you. I mean, you you, you know some of my story and you heard some of my story. There's nothing on paper that says. The oldest son of a divorced single mother in a low-income household, you know, who didn't even get a journalism degree, somehow ended up where I am today. So I am never confused that this is not something about me. Like, I'm never, ever confused. Mm. I I take credit for taking the opportunity and making the most of it because that's my contribution. Mm -hmm. You know, God only blesses you when you do the work goes with the blessing. Faith that our works is dead. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to make it sound like, I don't, you know, it just happened. I had to help it happen by participating in God's plan. But I'm just a vessel. So I thank you for giving me yet another place to pour out what was poured into me. Thank you, man. It's meant a lot to have you on. I really do appreciate that. Thank you for the kind words. And I look forward to connecting again soon. Okay. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'd love to be a guest on your podcast. Thanks. Hopefully you guys got something out of today's interview. It was really inspiring for me to talk to Alfred because he's played such a pivotal role on the content that has been put out on Black Enterprise, both in the magazine and out online. And again, his his experience has gone over three decades, which frankly, particularly in this industry, uh, the journalism industry is just amazing and full of consistency and the richness of the people that he's spoken to. You could hear that wisdom come across. And Black Enterprise magazine, for me, as I mentioned in the interview, was one of the first magazines that I read that had inspired me to let me know that things were possible. It made stock reading digestible for me. And before Hustle and all these other terms came out, It just let me know that creating a business, buying a home and doing other stuff, not only that it's possible, but that it was meaningful, not only for myself, but for those after me. So hopefully you got something out of this. Guys, I would love to hear what you thought about this interview, other interviews in the past. Please leave feedback out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, wherever you're listening to this podcast at. We're on all the platforms out there. And if you want to reach out to me directly, please don't hesitate to do that. I'm on Twitter at Priest Willis. Feel free to email me, priest at insidethemarketplace.com. I would very much appreciate it, and it does wonders for the growth of our podcast. Until next Sunday, when we have another guest on to share more insightful information with you, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. I'm the best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious.